Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox, centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Brother Derek, how you doing, sir? Great. Uh, happy Black History Month. Yes, it is Black History Month, so celebrate. I mean, there are a variety of different ways to celebrate. I've been on a couple of like the streaming or book platforms, and every single one of them has a curated list of Black stories, Black experiences. I was just on Disney Plus and Hulu in the last couple of days. They both got curated lists for Black stuff, so there are a variety of ways, at Wait, least in they, media. I bet they don't have Song of the South on Disney Plus. I certainly hope not. <laughs> yeah, I certainly that hope be... they don't have Song of the South. Or Dumbo, for that matter, but, you know. Oh, yeah, conversation the crows. Day. Yeah, um, well, anyway. But anyway, um, before we yeah. get into the um, content of today's lesson, we are in John 2 through 4. Uh, is there anything um, in terms of, I don't know, context that we want to put the people onto before we dive into the actual content of the lesson? Any history stuff or whatever? Yeah, there's, well, before I get to that, I want talk about two things one is you heard the nba young boy is allegedly planning to join the church right yeah i heard about it okay well we're gonna see where that goes because that uh that could be that could be a lot of interesting stories uh and the second thing is we have an uh, unex we have an exceptionally cold uh weekend here in boston so uh very cold way below freezing with the wind chill it's like negative 30 so it feels like 60 degrees below freezing it's like it's a mess Gross. and uh our pipes froze this morning oh my so so the hot water pipe to the shower froze i we did not have any hot water uh well we didn't have any living water either we'll get to living water later so what i did was i took a garden sprayer and filled it with hot water from the sink and then use that to take a shower. So that's kind of my uh, thinking outside the box and making a way out of no way and bending the rules. So always <laughs> uh, be prepared. Anyway, so I wanted to talk about the Book of Signs. And so scholars have identified what may be a coherent unit in the first 12 chapters of John, the the last part of John 1 after the prologue up to John chapter 12, and they have seen seven signs. The Greek word is semeon, which means uh, a sign or something that signifies or a miracle. Uh, it, it, gets, it gets used of miracles because those are signifying something. I wanted to just say a little bit about these, uh, this book of signs. So the first of these miracles and the author of John points it out as the first of the signs. So, so there's a they're numbered in in some way in John. The first of these is the changing the water into wine in Cana in John two. The second of these miracles is the healing of the royal official's son in Capernaum in John four, which I don't have. I'm not going to say much about. There's a parallel in Matthew eight that we can talk about it there. Uh, a partial parallel. The third of the signs is uh, healing the paralytic at Bethesda in John 5. The fourth is feeding the 5,000 in John 6. And then the fifth is Jesus walking on water in John 6. Then you've got the sixth of the signs, healing the man blind from birth in John 9. And the seventh then is the raising of Lazarus, the raising of Lazarus in John 11. So, uh, 
scholars can dispute a little bit about which signs go where, and some some have a, an alternative, but that's kind of the consensus. And so we're going to be dealing with the first of these signs. And I want to talk about what John's logic is in having these signs of pointing towards Christ. And I want to bring in some background as a teacher who sometimes gets asked to write college recommendations. Now, you know, when Harvard gets, they probably get ten to 15,000 undergraduate applications every year. Can you imagine messing through? That's like, that's almost as bad as the online dating world, sorting through thousands. <laughs> right? How am I going to swipe swipe on all these thousands of dudes? But sorting through, uh, here's the thing about recommendations. Every kid who's applying to Harvard is going to find a teacher that says they're smart and says they're hardworking and says they're a great kid. You know, they're going to say all the same adjectives. They're smarter, intelligent, they're hardworking and uh, persistent, and they're pleasant and nice and kind or whatever, like all these same adjectives. But it turns out adjectives are not as powerful as concrete narratives. So instead of saying, oh, this student was is smart, what I can say is, on the third week of class, I gave the entire class a college-level problem, and this student solved it through this ingenious way that ha- I had not presented before. I, like, you can just actually give a concrete narrative, and that is compelling. It draws the reader in. And it, it, you know how they say show, don't tell? Yeah. When you're writing? Yeah. Like, that's a way of showing instead of telling. So instead of using adjectives, using these... Uh, Concrete examples. Narratives, right? Yeah. Because that is interesting. Then you show what you mean by intelligent. You show what you mean by kind, or you show what you mean by hardworking with actual details and evidence. And this is exactly what the Book of Signs does for the Gospel of John. And I want to say the people who give testimonies in the church don't follow this advice because they're up there with all these adjectives. Oh, the church is true. The Book of Mormon is true. The prophet is true. Right? What do you mean by true? Like, I want to hear more than just adjectives. So uh, here's a pro tip to everyone who's listening. Next time you give your testimony, don't just dump a whole bunch of adjectives because that's not going to have the same impact as a concrete narrative. Like, I want to ask people, what do you mean the church is true? What if I told people Walmart is the one true store? What would that even mean, right? What does it even mean that we're the one true church? Like, what, is, what does it mean to you? Like, so... I don't want to waste any more time on that. But you you have any thoughts on this? No, it's just a shibboleth of of sorts. You know, it's one of those ways that we identify ourselves. It's, it's more about identifying who we are more than it is about, you know, a declarative statement. Like, this is how we show that we belong, I feel like, more often than not. Mm. Um, when we say that the church is true, I mean, we may very well believe that, but I do agree that it's a curious wording that we don't think too much about because it's more of an identifier than it is, um, I don't know, a declaration of faith. So, um, I mean, I'm saying this as somebody who grew up in the church and knows how to pick out somebody who doesn't belong without very much effort, like how they pray, how they bear testimony or, you know, a variety of other things. Um, but you know, that's, that is a bit of a different conversation. And I do, even though it is like against the recommendations of like the first presidency or whatever to share narratives or share how we know or whatever, because like this is what the church has advised us to do is simply get up and declare what we know to be true. 
uh, and I like to use your words to declare the adjectives. That's what the church has asked us to do. But I do think there is definitely power in sharing compelling narratives that mm. help other mm-hmm. people see mm-hmm. uh, how we know what we know. Like, I think there is a lot more power in that than simply getting up and declaring adjectives. So, uh, well, you know, I mean, it's only fair because the conservatives are attacking pronouns. So I should be up here attacking adjectives. <laughs> let's uh, <laughs> let's just uh, spread it all around. But anyway, so I'm not against adjectives. My, my problem is that they can be very ambiguous. They can be um, they don't really communicate well because what what's one person when one person says, oh, I, the Book of Mormon is true. What does that mean? Does it mean you think it's historically literally accurate in a fundamentalistic manner or do you mean it's true in the sense that it brings people to real faith in christ now that's what it did does for me right mm. so if you say the book of mormon is true it could mean a whole bunch of different things and it could lead to miscommunication and people will will uh assume you mean one thing rather than the other so that's why i rarely get up and say well the book of mormon is true because people might layer on to that a whole bunch of stuff that i'm not saying right okay so let's talk about wine for a second. And in my days before repentance, before I joined the church, I did partake of alcohol reasonably and moderately and responsibly. And now I don't. But here's something interesting. A lot of people talk about in order to be exalted, you have to obey all the commandments. Now, the, the problem with this is, A, they have not enumerated all the commandments like I tried to do, and it's exceptionally hard. But second of all, not all commandments apply to all people at all times in the same way. There are exceptions. There are different dispensations. There are different um, – it goes back to the principle that no one has to run faster than they have strength, right? And there are certain commandments like circumcision that were very clearly part of the eternal covenant uh, with Abraham, but – of course, that was only obligated to the men. It wasn't obligated on all folks, and it was mm-hmm. only obligated to Jews and not on Gentiles, and it's no longer um, obligated in this dispensation. So there's just a lot of ways of, like, who's obligated to what? Like, who it, it, are all people obligated to reproduce? I don't think so. Uh, same thing with this wine business, because here, Jesus actually created wine. Uh, and I'm like, yeah, and this was clearly intoxicating wine because of the phrasing later that we get about waiting till all the guests are drunk and then you serve the 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 the, the inferior the not wine. good wine right anyway i want to just read the first five verses of john chapter two okay. now on the third day and this is the third day after the preceding events uh there was a wedding at cana in galilee jesus mother was there and his and jesus and his disciples were also invited to the wedding when the wine ran out, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no wine left. Jesus replied, woman, why are you saying this to me? My time has not yet come. His mother told the servants, whatever he tells you, do it. Um, and this, this last line actually echoes uh, what the Pharaoh said about Joseph in Egypt in terms of the provision of uh, grain. Very close uh, in language. But anyway, let's talk about this interaction because here is a strong woman of faith, I see, uh, who's able to hold Jesus accountable even though he's trying to deny um, the right timing mm-hmm. despite this first dismissal by Jesus 
Mary gives pushback, and he, she strategically arranges it by creating a situation where he has to act. He goes to the, she goes to the servants and says, whatever he tells you, do it. And that's, that's her response. She doesn't give in. She doesn't give up. She has faith that she can hold Jesus accountable to Jesus's identity. And he's saying, my time has not yet come. I've heard a lot of people talk about faith in God's timing. Mm-hmm. And that's a really slippery concept because God's timing is uh, dependent on us in many ways. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so... We get uh, we get Mary's pushback, and I see that as a strong uh, example of faith, not a lack of faith. And there's mm-hmm. one detail here. According to the Zondervan International Bible Background Commentary, uh, drawing upon Craig Keener's work, it says, quote, If women's quarters at ancient Jewish weddings were indeed near the place where the wine was stored— Mary may have learned of the shortage of wine before word reached Jesus and the other men. In what may have constituted a breach of etiquette, Mary informs Jesus in the process disturbing the male guests, close quote. I find that a very interesting and intriguing possibility as to, because I don't, it doesn't look like, uh, because Jesus, it doesn't look like Jesus' mother was hosting the wedding. Um, so, we're going to see what's happening here, and it looks like she found out something before Jesus did and then complained and said, you got to do something about it. That's what I'm doing to the brethren. I'm just following Mary's example, right? Very Why would the church put the scriptures in my hand and then condemn me for actually engaging them, right? Like mm. all these witnesses of people with strong faith doing something that's hard, doing something before time, right? I just, I could go on and on about that. But in terms of the wine, Jesus saves the best for last, right? The, the, uh, the, the, the master of the feast comes out and says, well, why did you save the best? Uh, how does it, let me just look up how it's phrased here. Everyone serves the good wine first. Yes. And then yeah, the, the head wine steward, after they get. Yeah. Yeah. The head steward calls the bridegroom and says, everyone serves the good wine first and then the cheaper wine when the guests are drunk. You have kept the good wine until now. I love that. I mean, it's there's so much unfairness in the church. There's so much um, where we're waiting on, on reparations, on justice in the church. But... For me, I'm able to comfort myself by saying Jesus saves the best for last. Like when we finally get official declaration three, we're going to have something to celebrate. And it's going to be better than than this mess of patriarchy and homophobia and transphobia that came before. Mm. And this reminds me a lot of what Jesus says later in the same Gospel of John to his disciples in John 16. I have many more things to say to you. But you cannot bear them now. But when the he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. This is John 16, verses 12 through 13. LGBT equality is one of those things that the apostles could not bear in the first century or in the 21st century. That's one of the many more things that Jesus wanted to tell them, but they were not ready. They couldn't handle it. Oaks can't handle it. Bednar can't handle it. Nelson can't handle it. Like, the spirit of truth is trying to guide us into all truth, but we're not ready. So that's kind of all I'm going to say about the the, uh, the uh, changing water into wine. I want to talk about the cleansing of the temple. Do you have something to say about the cleansing of the temple? 
Absolutely. Um, I really want to understand the problem here, the, the sin in this moment. Because if there's any moment in Jesus's ministry where you could reasonably assume that Jesus was angry, this might be it. And I feel like ang angry Jesus is important to notice, considering all that Jesus had to deal with in his ministry, his recorded ministry anyway. What we have, Jesus had to deal with a lot, yet his feelings aren't really noted as angry or even necessarily taking offense, if they're noted at all in those moments. There are moments where people lied to Jesus, where people whined like a lot of his followers when he taught hard things. There were people that betrayed Jesus, like literally shifted their loyalties like Judas. There were people that were cowards like the rich young ruler or like Peter, uh, constantly complaining, people that were falling asleep in Gethsemane at all the wrong times, um, like when Jesus needed them most. And there's no recorded moment in any of those narratives where offense seems to be taken by Jesus. But then we get to this whole temple thing, and that really seemed to set Jesus off based on how he acted. And I want to understand it because angry Jesus in considering all that seems especially important to understand for at least the reason that we might not make similar mistakes as individuals or as a church. Um, now I do want to note that there's no explicit recording of Jesus being angry here. We just have this assumption that many of us make, like when people talk about Jesus getting angry, they immediately go to Jesus driving the money changers out of the temple, flipping tables, yada, yada. Um, so, you know, that's more or less what I'm basing my assumption on, but till I get to the actual story itself, there are, there's a primary problem I want to understand because I don't think selling animals was the, pri the primary problem in the temple. Like John clarifies that the animals were like cattle, uh, doves, sheep, like all sacrificial animals. Like this is something we get in this account that we don't really get in the other gospels. So this could in, this could indicate that this is a simple accommodation being made for people who had traveled from far away and would need to inevitably purchase animals for sacrifice. So that may not have been a big deal in and of itself, but there are at least two things to consider that likely made Jesus angry. And one of them, the first one I want to talk about is the location where all of this is going down. Um, a piece about this story that is often left out is the specificity of the where the story is taking place. It, yes, it's at the temple, but it's in the outer courts of the temple where the sales are taking that where the sales are taking place. And the significant part about the outer courts of the temple is that it's the only place that Gentiles are permitted to worship, and that's been taken over by folks trying to make a quick buck, which obviously isn't okay. Uh, that is another accessible, that is another accessibility. Ex wow. That is another accessibility issue where we see people prioritizing making money and interfering with others ability to worship or over uh, other people's ability to worship, which brings me to the second thing. The sellers are likely charging an exorbitant amount of money for their goods. Matthew 21 verses, uh, 12 through 13 
indicates in its shorter covering of this story that the temple was turned into a den of thieves, terminology that should sound familiar, by the way, from our study of Jeremiah in the Hebrew Bible. And that conversation revolved very much around how the wickedness of those using the temple had turned it into a den of robbers, a den of thieves, rather than a holy house. They might have been performing the ordinances, but they were oppressing the stranger, oppressing the poor and the widow. They were stealing. They were murdering. They were committing adultery. They were swearing falsely and burning incense to Baal, basically breaking all Ten Commandments in the temple. And in this case, though, we have a corruption of the temple still, but specifically in the form of extorting people who are coming to worship at the very temple where they set up shop, which is a different kind of irony. So yeah, of course, Jesus would be angry, or if he was angry, we would certainly understand why. People are using his father's house, the house of the God of justice, to administer injustice, to extort some and obstruct others from entering the temple. Additionally, they're claiming that the prophet's brought in will go toward the maintenance of the temple and Jesus will display a similar anger next time someone uses his father's name to hurt a neighbor. So there's just a lot of problematic things going on at God's house or in God's name. And Jesus is understandably angry about that. In fact, the next time somebody weaponizes God's house or God's name to like oppress other people, we see Jesus again getting angry. We see a ton of exclamation marks in Matthew 23 where he rains down and just verbally addresses the religious leaders of that day. So like I'm reading this and I'm just like, do we do something similar? Like, do we ever kick people out that Jesus would want in so that we can make room for problematic people or problematic ideologies? Like, do we ever notice that uh, we are asking way too much of certain populations in the church or certain populations in general that we would not ask of ourselves, or that would be ultimately an injustice if it were asked of us. Like this is the kind of thing that we see happening at the moment that Jesus is making a whip and driving everybody out of the temple. Like we see Jesus is clearly at the very least indignant that his house, like his father's house is being used to commit injustices, uh, to kick the only people, the only to kick people out of the only area where they're actually permitted to worship, kick non-Jews out of the outer courts, and to also charge exorbitant amounts to worship in the temple, which is ultimately the house of God, who is a God of justice. So I think those are some things that we need to consider as we can as we consider uh, why Jesus acted the way that he did in this particular moment. I believe that he was acting out of a profound sense of justice and wanted to basically stop all of the injustice being committed in his father's house. Uh, what thoughts you got about that? Yeah, you said so many, so many good things. I want to talk a little bit about temples because this is one of the place where one of the places where the Lord's what should be a house of prayer for all peoples, as Isaiah fifty six says, functions as a house of discrimination. Mm. Right, we have patriarchy. We have the exclusion of uh, women from many pieces of the temple. We have the exclusion of LGBTQ people in different ways and in different manners. I'm like, why? Why is this? Why? Why do we want? Why do we want this? Right? Why are we turning the Lord's house into this this mess? Right? And I just I'm just sitting with this. And here's the 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 point that I want to make is to put the 
temple in proper balance, in proper proportion, because I think so much of the art and skill of being a theologian is having a sense of proportion and balance, like majoring in the major things and minoring in the minor things. And yes, I'm glad there are temples, and I'm glad that they're important, and I'm right. However, I think there's a problem when you put too much weight on the temple and too much emphasis on the temple and too much uh, celebrity status uh, around the the temple because the temple has a very, very a small place to play in the mm-hmm. New Testament witness, and that's mm-hmm. my main connection with the scriptures is the New Testament. And I just want to say, like, what what's going on with all this? And so here's a trick question that I want to ask people is, how many temples are there? And then people will want to go to the, you know, the church's website and look up the number of, of how many of those buildings there are. And there's, there's, there's over 150 of those buildings. But I'm here to say that those aren't actually temples. They're only temples in a figurative sense and in a symbolic sense, in a pointing sense. But the real temples are us. We humans are created in the image of God. So how many temples are there? There are 8 billion temples on this earth. Those are real temples. Those buildings that say the house of the Lord on them, those are pointing towards this symbolic, um, tangible uh, presence of where the heavens and earth intersect, right? It points towards that, but we are actually the image bearers. The temple does not bear the image of God. We bear the image of God. We who are alive bear the image of God. We are the temples. We are where divinity dwells in the world. And I want to say that Jesus decenters the temple. He refocuses the temple. He he reprioritizes the temple. It's just amazing how our culture tends to overestimate and over uh put overclaim and overconfidence and over uh, put too much weight on the temple. I'm not against the temple, right? But, but we it can need become to see an idol. What, right. Like like we said last time, or maybe I don't know if I said this, but Satan loves to tempt us with second best. Satan yeah. doesn't really it, it, you know, I'm not I have never been tempted to to kill people, but I have been tempted to put too much weight on the scriptures. I like the scriptures. They're good, but they're not God. So, same thing with the temple. Satan loves to trick us with something second best because that takes our noblest motives and turns them against God and begins causes us to end up running afoul of the first commandment, not to have any other gods yeah. before God. Not even the temple, right? Not even the, the marriage, not even the family. We're going to get to those idols later. But here's what Jesus says. Um Destroy this temple. This is in John 2, verses 19 through 21. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. Then the Jewish Jewish leaders said to him, This temple has been under construction for 46 years, and you are going to raise it up in three days? But Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. Notice what he does. He completely decenters the the the, the, building. Her, the temple of Herod, the building, and recenters it on his own body. That's the real temple the human body, his body, that is where we should end up focusing. And I want to talk a little bit about covenants because people love the covenants they make in the temple, or or many, many people do. Our culture, well, our culture tells people to love them and prize them. And and I, I think it's cool that we should have the proper 
proportion and respect for them. However, covenants in our cultural context lead to, to some problems. These covenants uh, and ordinances lead to anxiety, they lead to scrupulosity, and they lead to arrogance. They lead to anxiety when they're not available. Like, oh no, I, like, I'm worried that I didn't catch all my ancestors and they're not going to have the ordinances. Or, oh no, like... I I married this uh this I, this is a real story. Like I've I've heard of women who marry a man who has a previous uh, have has kids from a previous marriage, either divorced or, or widowed, right? And the man is sealed to the his previous wife, and the kids, the the stepkids, are sealed to the previous. Uh, wife as well. So this new wife comes in, she's raising these little kids and she's not sealed to them. Like, and there's no way in our doctrine we can fix that, uh, that we know of, right? There's no, there's no, like covenant, our covenant, our concept of covenants creates anxiety in faces, in places like these. What about people sealed to their abusers? What about people like me who aren't sealed to anyone, right? What about mm -hmm. LGBT folks who are not allowed to be sealed to their, to their, uh, spouses right there's just so many ways that covenants create anxiety yes they might alleviate anxiety like oh if your family fits the mold you've got the mommy and daddy and all the kids and you're and everything works out and you're sealed together like oh you'll know you'll see them together or you'll be together forever like that's interesting because when you look at the promises in DNC 132 about sealing, it has nothing to do with, quote, being together. You will not find those words, being together or mm -hmm. seeing one another again, anywhere in DNC 132. The promises are much more specific, much more narrow uh, than just generically, quote, being together or, or having a marriage that lasts forever, uh, you know, being being with your loved one forever, right? So they also cause scrupulosity if you're trying to make your covenants work. It will end up causing people to have so much uh, obsession over over these things. Or if your covenants all work out and you think you've checked all the boxes, then it leads to arrogance or it leads to smugness or it leads to indifference. Like there's all these people who are all set and they don't even care about people like me who are excluded from some of the most important covenants that the church can make. And I, w I would just want to say, well, that's not the way of Christ. The way of Christ is in Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. He, look, he's, he's not saying come to me, all you who are, have it all set. He's looking out for the marginalized, those who are in the worst situations. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest, which is the mm. opposite of the anxiety that people culturally create with these covenants take my yoke on you and learn from me because i am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy to bear and my load is not hard to carry and i just want to quote two other texts in the new testament that really decenter the temple this is from paul and he was writing while the while the second temple still existed when he wrote 1 Corinthians, the, the, the Jerusalem temple still existed. But here's what Paul says. He de dethrones that temple and says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? Where are the literalists here? Where are the fundamentalists here when it specifically says that we are God's temple? Not those buildings that cost millions of dollars, but we are God's temple. And then the New Testament closes in the second to last chapter, Revelation 21, verse 22. John says, 
in his vision, he says, Now I saw no temple in the city, and this is the New Jerusalem, because the Lord God, the all-powerful, and the Lamb are its temple. So we see the New Testament, even even before the, the second temple was destroyed, decentering the temple, focusing on Jesus as the temple, focusing on us, the community, as the temple. So I just want to name that we need to put the temple back in its proper place. Out of the center. <laughs> yes, out of the center. Yes. And yeah. I, I'm not against the temple. I think the temple right. is functioning correctly when it's pointing to Jesus. When it's pointing to Jesus. If it's not pointing to Jesus, if it's not pointing to love, if it's not pointing to God, if it's not pointing to these things, we've missed the mark. And we've become uh, engaged in empty ritual or engaged in this outward uh, ritualism mm. that really doesn't misses the whole point. Right. Anyway, so I want to talk about the end of John chapter two. We've got this very interesting line. And in the original uh, manuscripts and the original document, there would have been no chapter numbers. Those chapter numbers are a medieval invention. They're not even from from the early church. So there wouldn't have been any division between chapter two and chapter three. Uh, and the end of, of John, the last verse of John 2 says, he, meaning Jesus, he did, uh, did not need anyone to testify about man, Anthropos, for he knew what was in man, Anthropos. Uh, and uh, then the next, uh, within four words, we get if the fourth word after that is also Anthropos again. Now, now there was a man of the Pharisees. And I think some of our English translations obscure this by translating it. Instead of saying man, they make it gender neutral in John 2. He didn't need anyone to testify about anyone because he knew what was in everyone or something like that. I think the NRSV does. And then they don't see a certain man of the Pharisees. They'll just say like a ruler of the Pharisees. I can't remember how the NRSV does it. But I think it's really important I'm that we've got— i at it. It says everyone. Okay. Yeah. Um, we've got man, anthropos in John 3, 1— Nicodemus. So we have Jesus knew knows what was in man. Now the problem here is is obvious that man is no longer gender neutral. It used to be the old English word for human, right? And where uh, w e r was the specific adult male, right? Now man has become narrowed in its scope to meaning male. And that causes problems in English. But anthropos does not do that. It is it is human. It is uh what our species is um so there was uh so like he knows what was in, in the human heart and he get we get this not just in adjectives but in narratives we get this with nicodemus in john 3 because jesus knows what's going on in, in nicodemus's heart and jesus knows what was going on in the woman of samaria's heart like he knew what was in both of them and i think that's a great introduction to john chapter 3 now, I wanted to, do you have something to say about Nicodemus? Yeah, most definitely. And it's in conjunction with uh, what you just said about missing the mark when it comes to the temple, because a lot of Nicodemus's confusion when he talks to Jesus uh, seems to come from the Jews generally uh, missing the mark. And what I mean by that uh, comes when he explains what it is to be born of water and of, uh, of the spirit. I'm particularly interested in 
the significant rebuke from Jesus to Nicodemus in verse nine. And I thought about it a lot uh, in this uh, in this particular reading. Nicodemus does seem to be impressed with Jesus, um, you know, and seems to confess that you know Jesus knows what he's talking about or whatever. Um, but in verse nine. Nicodemus straight up asks, how can these things be? And then in Jesus's response, it's worth considering because it indicates a few things. Uh, But first of all, Jesus' response in the next verse is, are you a teacher of Israel and yet do not understand these things? Like Nicodemus is a religious leader, as a religious leader, should have, apparently should have understood and should have known what Jesus was talking about. Um... Jesus wasn't really saying anything new, apparently, um, you know, unless we consider the whole baptism by immersion thing. That does seem to be a little obscure uh, to the folks at this time. But it is the same problem that John the Baptist seemed to allude to when we talked about it last week regarding being children of Abraham. John understood what Jesus was talking about. Again, for a quick refresher, the Jews thought their link to God's blessings was guaranteed through their ancestry. I mean, yeah, they were Abraham's descendants. The land was given to them by God. God's temple was in Jerusalem. All of this meant something um, to the Jews, as evidenced by John the Baptist's preemptive challenge of their entitlement from last week's lesson, uh, Jesus's words here, and uh, Jesus's words in John 8, uh, verses 39 through 40. We're going to see a similar challenge by Jesus himself this time when Jesus, or sorry, when the Jews boast in a heated discussion that Abraham is their father. Like, yes, that is true, and that is spiritually irrelevant because they don't act like Abraham, as Jesus will note, or they don't have his attitude, as Jesus goes on to say. Uh, He says in John 8, verse 39 through 40, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. And then he concludes defiantly, Abraham did not do this. So when Jesus was lightly rebuking Nicodemus, he was acknowledging that Nicodemus as a religious leader of the Jews should have understood the implications of being born again. Israel needed a new spiritual identity. They needed a new heart. At this point, as evidenced by their Roman occupation, they were in rebellion to God and put away, or sorry, put way too much stock in their ancestry. This whole, this whole thing was talked about in the Hebrew Bible. Injustice and other rebellion against God had brought destruction and, and exile upon Israel. But a future of cleansing would be what was talked about. It was talked about and foreseen by by uh, Ezekiel. It says in uh, Ezekiel, this is 36, uh, starting in 25, I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Now, again, I do want to acknowledge there are certain things that Nicodemus like wouldn't have known. Baptism by immersion, for example, mimicked specifically the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and that would have been most unfamiliar to him. But what he should have known, and what there is lots of evidence for, was the way that the Jews were going about the practice of their faith was just not it. Um, Israel had failed God 
over and over again because they did not walk in justice and they were not looking after the widow. They were not looking after the poor. They were not taking care of the stranger. They were acting in ways that were contrary to the law of God. They were not truly oriented to God. And only those who make such a transition from that to this actual attitude of Abraham, as Jesus is noting, could actually enter the kingdom of God. This is what Nicodemus should have known based on the previous law. And I feel like, based on what was written in the Hebrew Bible, and I feel like we can really fall into this trap as saints. I feel like you and I in particular, um, and you know, several other people, often say things that can be perceived as radical because we don't hear them a lot, but they are, but they are in the scriptures. I, I can't, I've lost count of how many times I've heard you, Derek, say in a very exasperated tone, it's in the scriptures. Like it's not new. Um, a lot of the things that we talk about when we focus on love or when we focus on justice and talking about how we should be affirming people that we're not accustomed to affirming, that's not really new. And this shouldn't be new to our leaders either if they have studied the scriptures or if they are willing to read the scriptures in that way. Um, I feel like this is the problem of the religious leaders of that day. And this is the problem that Jesus is running into with Nicodemus is Nicodemus is so caught up in a culture that is so focused on their Abrahamic ancestry that they are not focused on having the heart of Abraham, having the attitude of Abraham, having an attitude that would actually get them in to the kingdom of God. Uh, how do you read it? Yeah, I, I read it very similarly. And I think we have to be careful how we talk about Israel because we should never divorce. And yeah, I'm not saying you were doing this, but we should never divorce this from its, its, its historical context. Like Israel was designed to be a blessing to everyone. It was never meant to be a segregation-y thing. Mm -hmm. Like you, we can see this in the Torah where if there are strangers among, and like you've said, if there are strangers, if they're foreigners, people of other ethnicities in the land, you have to treat them well. There shall be one law, right? To the, to the, uh, to the native born and the, and the foreign born among you. I'm, I think this is in Exodus 12. And I'm like, why, so this is the context. Like Israel is is meant to be a blessing to everyone else. And I think this is what we need to to think about is when Israel becomes isolated. It's not something that's bad about Jews. It's something that happens to all of us, right? And we Certainly. see this being recapitulated in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. People now think, oh, we're here for us. We're and everyone else path. is just kind of whatever, <laughs> right? It's a similar so kind think, of chosen people complex. Right, exactly. Uh, and I, I, I think it's really interesting, uh, some, some things that I've noticed about, uh, about Jesus as a masterful teacher and then the author of the Gospel of John as a great author. So let me just go and talk about how I think that the author of John carefully juxtaposed these two narratives in what is now John 3 and 4, but remember there's, there were no chapter divisions, um, uh, I think until the 1300s. I think it's, I think it's, it's quite late, uh, maybe, the 12, maybe the 12th century, something like that. But the author of the Gospel of John provides these contrasts and I think deliberately placed... Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman side by side to show contrasts and to 
to demonstrate the inclusive scope and the range of Christ's ministry, that it's not just for the Jews, right? It's for everyone. So here's some contrasts. Nicodemus is male, and the Samaritan woman is female. And that's a significant uh, significant uh, category right here, right? Um, Nicodemus, Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, and Jesus comes to the Samaritan woman in the middle of the day. So this is complete opposites here. Nicodemus is named. We know his name, but the Samaritan woman is unnamed. Nicodemus is Jewish, and the Samaritan woman is, uh, spoiler alert, she's a Samaritan. Uh, <laughs> and Nicodemus is a respected citizen, a well-known ruler of the Jews. He's on the Sanhedrin. You can't really get any higher than that except maybe the uh, the high priest, right? The, the Sanhedrin was the highest ruling body in Judaism. He's at the center of power. He's at the center of respect. He's a well-known teacher. Even Jesus has, uh, has respect for him. Now here's the now the Samaritan woman is likely a social outcast. It's it's probably known to the community that she's been with five uh, men, and the one she's with now is not her husband. Right? That is, uh, people commentators have always noticed this that that's maybe why she's going to the uh, to the well in the middle of the day. So here we've got the extremes, the different ends, like the the. the the, the scope that, that covers all the poles, all the binaries, all the polarities. And I just uh, I just want people to know that. I'm, I'm not the first person to notice these parallel these contrasts, but I can't even remember where I where I first heard of that. But I want to talk a little bit about the uh, kingdom of God language in John 3 5. Jesus says to Nicodemus, Unless a person is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And last week we lo- talked a little bit about political language people say oh jesus was never political let me tell you honey if you're political you if you're not political you don't get yourself crucified right (laughs) rome isn't interested in crucifying like meaningless hippies that are giving around going around spreading like timeless knowledge that doesn't mean anything right Hmm. he was crucified and the title under which he was crucified was the king of the jews he was crucified by law enforcement of an imperial political power. Like, that is a political act itself. Like, everything Jesus does has political implications. Now, I think what people mean by political is, oh, like a political party, like Democrat or Republican in the United States. And that's not what I mean by political. What I mean is political has to do with how we live together in community, how groups of people live together in community. And this kingdom of God language, Basileia, Tutheu, is political language. Um, now, I've learned in Old English, because I've heard of, of people who want to de-patriarchy, de, uh, to take out the patriarchy from kingdom, and they say the word kindom, K-I-N-D-O-M, kingdom. But but actually, it turns out that, that king and kin are related anyway. Um, so the Old English is kun, which for, for kin or family or group, and kuning for king. And a kuning was, was basically a tribal chieftain of a bunch of people that were related to each other, extended families, right? A local... Uh, and and so someone who was supposed to ca- take care of the extended family, the kun. 
anyway, so I just find that very interesting that that our our Germanic heritage around kingdom isn't around like uh, what people might think of as a king, but supposed to be someone who's taking care of this extended family. Which also goes to show that family in the ancient and medieval world is constructed very differently than this heteronuclear Instagram. Basically, if you can fit your family on Instagram, that's not a biblical family. Let me just put it that way. Um, (laughs) Now, here's the thing. People say, oh, Derek, you're being political. Like, the Torah is political, right? Jesus is political. Paul is political. Um, but here's the thing. I love that they accuse me of the th- same things that they accused Christ of. They accused Christ of being a troublemaker. They accused Christ of being political. They accused Christ of all these things. They accused Christ of being an apostate, of being a blasphemer. Like, I should count it as joy when people treat me like people in power treated Christ. I shouldn't be complaining. Like, I'm complaining, but... I should be so glad that I'm on the side of Christ. And over this past week, people in various Facebook groups have accused me of attacking the church and attacking the brethren, which isn't even what I'm doing. But what's interesting about that is people have accused me of attacking the church and attacking the brethren, but no one has accused me of attacking Christ. Isn't that interesting? Hmm. No one has, because they can't. They know that as best as I can, I'm in harmony with the teachings of Christ in the New Testament. I probably know them better than anyone else on, on the internet that's engaging with me. You do. I've seen the people that be talking to and about you. You do. Right? They know <laughs> that that I'm going to have the full witness of whatever Christ said on every topic in my head at the moment, at any moment's notice. Like, they will not win if they say, oh, ooh, that, that, oh, that bugs me. There's something in our culture about being Christ-like. I mean, like, yeah, they're taking a very small, <laughs> filtered subset sample of what Christ did, and they whitened it. Have you, they, so the white Christ, anyway. And right. they, they make it sweet and sentimental, and they have exchange sentimentality for the substance, the powerful testimonies of Christ we have in the Gospels and in Paul and throughout the New Testament. Anyway, I better not ramble on about that because I want to go on this next verse where this is John 3, 6, and 7. Jesus says to Nicodemus, what is born of the flesh is flesh and what is born of the spirit is spirit. We've got two different kinds of birth here, Mm. right? A lot of people want to center straight biological reproduction as the the center of everything, like the 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 whatever, right? They idolize that. But what what Jesus says here to Nicodemus completely decenters quote being in the right family, whether it's your race race or ethnicity or your family or whatever. That's being born of the flesh. And Jesus decenters it and saying, no matter what you were born of in terms of flesh, you need to be born again, right? What is born of the flesh is flesh, and what is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must all be born from above. The word anothen could mean uh, uh, from above or or again, born again or born from above. So I love how he decenters straight reproduction, decenters the what could be an, a temptation in Israel to... Uh, glory in your biological heritage. He 
it's interesting in how this plays out in his own life because Jesus's own biological siblings don't even believe in him in John's narrative. John chapter mm-hmm. 7, 1 through 9, we see his brothers don't believe in him, and they probably don't until after the resurrection. I want to say something very interesting about uh, John 3, 7, and 8. Here's what it says. Jesus says, Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must all be born from above, or again. The wind blows wherever it will, to pneuma hopu thele pne, and you hear the sound it makes, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So we've got this this word play here, the word pneuma, which means uh, spirit or breath or wind. So the same Greek word and also the same Hebrew word ruach means spirit and breath and wind altogether. Uh, in English, it doesn't tr- translate the same because wind and blow aren't cognate in English. We could say the spirit inspires wherever it will, or the wind winds wherever it will, or the the breath breathes wherever it will. That's what we get in the Greek, to pneuma pne. We've got the noun form and the verb form of the same root together. The spirit uh, blows wherever it will. Now, what does this mean? That we can't predict where it's going, where it's coming from, where it's going, and... So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. There's this um, talk, which I don't have time to talk much about. Uh, This is the Renland talk, a framework for personal revelation from October 2022. Mm. And he has this very narrow, cutesy framework that, oh, if you work within this framework, then you'll get the Spirit. I'm like, no, the Spirit blows where it wishes. It blows apart your framework. I think the word framework really short circuits the conversation. Um, And this is a problem where knowing one verse or one doctrine is like knowing one key on the piano keyboard. You might know that one real well, but if that's the only key you're hitting, it's going to be real boring real fast, and you don't have the full richness of what the instrument can do. Same thing with the gospel. If you hit on just one verse, if you hit on this idea like the still small voice. I think a part of the problem is culturally we've got this scripture mastery thing where instead of people actually mastering books of the Bible as wholes, seeing, well, what's the whole outline? What is each piece doing in the context of the argument? Or the how is this being persuaded? People take these scripture mastery verses and memorize them out of context and don't know what they're doing in their literary context or in their historical context for the original hearers or readers. And the general authorities probably were raised on that method, that, oh, you can find this little golden nugget and take it out of context, and that can be a, uh, a, a sort of a, a, a catalyst for, for personal inspiration and whatever. And I'm fine with that to one level, right? If, if this, this little verse helps you make it through your day and helps you be a better person— that's a good start, right? Line upon line. Mm-hmm. If that's the line you're on, I'm glad you're engaging the scripture in some way, but that should not be all we do. Like our right. general authorities are not trained experts on the scripture. They're not professionals. They have not um, probably done, I mean, I mean, I don't know what they've done and they haven't done. But Renland is hitting on a few truths and ignoring the rest of Scripture's diverse witness on this. Like this still small voice in 1 Kings 19, 12, which I think Renland, I don't know if he quoted it or if it's in a footnote as a, as a, as a proof text. 
But that ignores that in the previous chapter in 1 Kings 18, you've got Elijah and the priests of Baal. That was not a still small voice. This was a fiery (laughs) whirlwind from heaven that came and burnt up the sacrifice publicly, dramatically, shockingly, in front of all the priests of Baal, burnt up the water that was drenched over the, the, the sacrifice. This is not, oh, the spirit is being like this little cutesy bunny feather fluffy thing, right? The spirit is not fluffy, right? The spirit is scary. Um, the spirit is unpredictable. Like, look at um, Paul on the road to Damascus. Paul didn't f- follow any framework. There's no framework there. He was doing the opposite of the framework, and he was interrupted by Christ, right? I think Renlin is really limiting what uh, what the spirit is doing by trying to say that, oh, it's like an airplane. If you don't fly the airplane right, you won't get the spirit and you won't get personal revelation and you'll crash and burn. It was a very manipulative talk. It was very inappropriate and it does not, is not true to the full diversity and the full witness of the entire piano that we've got, right? Anyway, I want to move on to John 3, 16 and 17. I could probably talk for hours about that, but let me just say a couple (laughs) of things about that. For this is the way God loved the world. By the way, in the Wessex Gospels, uh, translated into the West Saxon dialect of Old English, uh, the word for world is middanyard, which is Middle Earth, literally. Right. So this mm-hmm. is where Tolkien got the uh, concept of Middle Earth. For this is the way God loved the world. He gave his one and only Son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world should be saved through him. Like this should bring peace. It should not bring anxiety. It should not bring scrupulosity. It should not bring arrogance. God loves the entire world and makes every provision uh, for us to have eternal life. Um, it's no, there's no condemnation, no gotcha, no, oops, you didn't get the ordinances, or oops, you didn't get to the temple, or oops, you're gay, or oops, you're this, oops, there's no oops here. That's not the point. God did not send Jesus in so that everyone would oops. God sent the world Jesus because everyone already oopsed, right? That's the whole point of grace. That's the whole point of love. I think we've mis- misunderstood this by thinking culturally that we have to qualify for exaltation or that we have to earn God's love or all this other stuff. Let's talk about love. God loved the world. Like, it's it's shocking how shocking that is because I grew up with that. And I'm like, oh, God loved the world. Like, there are religions where the gods don't love the people, right? I don't I don't think in the Greco-Roman pantheon that they that the gods really love the people. I, I'm not even sure. In the in the Old Norse pantheon, I'm not sure. I'm not an expert on these. But that's not the primary concept of these gods, is that they're primarily loving towards us. They, they, they may, uh, may not be. Anyway, so for me, I organize things about around God as love, God loving the world. Um, as John, 1 John 4 says, God is love. Uh, our primary commandments are to love God and love neighbor and love enemy. 
And so I organize things not around temple, not around authority, not around prophets and apostles, but I organize things around love for God, love for neighbor, and love for enemy. And I just want to say something about priesthood ordinances real quick. If I'm correct, none of our priesthood ordinances mention the word love. It's not in the ceiling. People romanticize and Disneyize the Disneyfy the ceiling ordinances is the best thing. It's not even about love, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the endowment doesn't have the word love in it, if I remember correctly. Baptism, the gift of the Holy Ghost, the Washington and anointing, um, the ceiling. None of those have the word love. And I'm not saying that they're they're bad. I'm saying you got to put them in their place. Love is central. These ordinances are speaking to something, but those aren't the be-all, end-all. Those are not what we worship, right? We do not worship the temple. We do not worship the ordinances. This is not the church of temple ordinances of, Jesus, of, of Latter-day Saints. This is the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And insofar as those ordinances and the temple point to Christ, they're useful. Insofar as they don't, then they will tend to detract from Christ and become idols, like I said, we are where divinity dwells in the world, not temples. I want to go to First John four, and it's so important. I want to I want to get through some of these things, mm-hmm. but uh, I'm not going to read the the whole. But everyone, go home and read First John four seven through twenty. I don't want to take the time to read them now, but this is about um, those who why we should love one another because love is from God. God is love, and that love means that God sent God's only Son into the world. Um, if God loved us, then we ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. This is a, an echo of John 1. But if we love, then God resides in us. And um, by this is love perfected with us. This is verse 17 that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because just as Jesus is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. Uh, Verse 19, we love because he loved us first. Verse 20, if anyone says, I love God, and yet hates his fellow Christian, he is a liar, because the one who does not love his fellow Christian, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. It just is so amazing how this how this all works together, that God is love, and the one who doesn't love doesn't know God. This is verse 8. The person who does not love does not know God because God is love. It is so easy for people to um, claim to know God but then act unloving. And this is where we run into a cultural problem because so many people are groomed by our culture to use to use authority to tell us what love means. I do it backwards from that. I use love to tell us what authority means. I use love to tell me when authority is right and when it's wrong, when I should disobey authority, right? Other people will use authority to diminish my capacity to love. I'm like, no, that is backwards. Love is central. Any thoughts or reactions to this? Only that I agree, my friend. Uh, oh, good. And like you said, good. we we could talk extensively just on. I mean, definitely just on love itself. And I really like that little couplet you said about the reversal of how we should view authority mm-hmm. and love. Um, that's a great way. That's a great way to view it, and definitely merits uh, a longer convers. Well, will merit a longer conversation inevitably. 
not today, but you know, no. I'm sure we'll get opportunity no. to talk about it eventually. Well, I, I, you're trying to tell me I'm supposed to be done, but um, yeah, yeah. Well, there I have other things I was going to talk about with John Four. Maybe I can put some of these up in in various notes and things. I don't know, but we will find <laughs> out that. Um, I just wanted to read two verses from John okay. Four because it talks about how Jesus surprises us. So the Samaritan woman said to him, How can you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for water to drink? For Jews use nothing in common with Samaritans. I think that is so amazing that he's willing to cross these ethnic boundaries and these uh, gender boundaries to to meet her where she is. Um, and then in, on the way back, so his disciples had gone into the village to get some food. Now at that very moment, this is verse 27, now at that very moment his disciples came back. They were shocked because he was speaking with a woman. However, no one said, what do you want or why are you now speaking with her? I think it is so beautiful that he's crossing these boundaries. He's doing unpredictable things. He is doing what is socially and culturally inappropriate. So, oh, Derek, you're being socially and culturally inappropriate. Yeah, like this is the same dude that two chapters ago overthrew, overthrew the temple. And she, this woman becomes essentially an apostle because she gets, she goes and helps um, the rest of her village believe. Now, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the report of the woman who testified, he told me everything I did, John 4, 39. Anyway, so that's kind of where I want to, uh, to leave things is that we've got a God who surprises us, a Christ who surprises us, and... Um, we should not be surprised when Satan wants to decenter Jesus by putting something second best in there. And that second best could be the brethren. It could be the scriptures. It could be the temple. It could be the ordinances. It could be the, the family, right? Families are good, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but they're not God. And I think right. so much of our culture wants to use God to serve the family rather than the other round, saying families are organized ways that we should all serve God. Anyway, mm-hmm. that's all I'm I'm not done, but I'm going to be done. <laughs> Are you ever really done, honestly? Though, no. Rich? Exactly. So this will be nothing new. We'll just have to put some of these thoughts on a table or, you know, if we get some time, uh, put some of these thoughts on the socials if we get a moment. But... um those are some solid thoughts, and I'm sure the people are grateful for them nonetheless, Derek. So let that be some modicum of satisfaction for you today. Um, but anyway, before we go ahead and wrap up, notes, notes. Um, yeah, Derek, where can people find us? You can find us at beyondtheblockpodcast.com, also on Instagram and Facebook. Uh, Twitter at BTBLDS. You can also search for us on Facebook. Like now that we've restarted, I want people who are listening to figure out ways of sharing our our uh, podcast with those who might not know about us. Um, so yeah, think about people in your ward, in your family, in your networks, anyone who would love a breath of fresh air in uh, an otherwise challenging environment. And thank you to those of you who have uh, been sharing the podcast with your friends and with your family members. It means a lot to us. Like pretty much the whole way we get ourselves around is word of mouth. So uh, thank you guys who have already, I mean, our, our growth at the beginning of this little project that we call Beyond the Black, um, that, that went a lot further than 
I'll speak for myself, a lot further than I personally thought it was going to go in such a short amount of time. I did not anticipate we were going to have the now Mm -hmm. modest but significant following that we have. It's gotten to the point where I have not been able to visit a a single congregation in this country without being recognized as one of the voices on this podcast. And that's really all thanks to you guys. So thank you for the work that you're already doing. Um, But yeah. um, James just wants to uh, other people to hear all my jokes. And and, uh, so he doesn't have to (laughs) suffer alone. Everyone gets to suffer. Misery loves company guys. Like that's, that's really it. That's really it. I just don't want to be miserable alone. Yeah. Um, Anyway, um, is there anything else we got to put the people on to, Derek? Nope, I don't think so. All right, then on that note, thank you everyone for joining us. Uh, Till we meet again next week. Yeah, till we meet again. Bye-bye.